0: back. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Case, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life with experts in those fields. I love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. In this episode, we have uh, another return guest. I love having return guests because... This podcast is great. It's good for you guys. It's good you get to think along with me, but it's also awesome for me because I get to make all these new friends. And so uh return guests are, are some of my favorites. Um, today, I have with me again, Dr. Christopher, Christopher Watkin. And uh, last time we talked about his book on Derrida in the Great Thinkers series for uh, Presbyterian Reform. Today, we're going to be talking about Michel Foucault. Some might say Michael Foucault. It, uh, I believe it's Michelle, but we're going to ask Dr. Watkins here. Um, I'm excited about this, and it's going to be another. Some of you guys are analytics through and through. It's going to be another continental one. Chris says that that's an artificial distinction. Um, he's probably right, so don't worry about it. It's going to be really fun. I'm really excited for it. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone on Patreon for making this podcast happen. If you have benefited from this podcast. Uh, if you see value in it, then uh, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. And you can become a Patreon patron for as little as $3 a month, uh, all the way up through a, a huge range of gift options. And there's all sorts of perks that come with different levels of support. So if you like this podcast, you want to see me stick around, keep doing what what's happening here. Please consider supporting the podcast. So again, like I said, Michel Foucault. It's in the great series. It's in the great thinkers series for Presbyterian Reformed. It's very, very good. Um, let's not. Let's stop talking about it. And let's let's talk with uh, with Chris here. Chris, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. It's
1: lovely for you to have me back, Parker. I had a wonderful time last time, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah,
0: me too. Me too. So, like I like I was saying uh, a little bit earlier, uh, you. Have this series in uh, the, on the Gospel Coalition. It's a it's a series of lectures, and uh, I listened to them a few years back when they came out. I believe it was a few years, and I spent the day listening to them. So I feel like I've been talking with you all day. So I'm really excited to get in and uh, and ask some of the questions. Where can people find those before we we jump in?
1: I think if you Google David Foucault and the Bible Gospel Coalition,
0: it'll be among the first couple of hits. Okay, awesome I can just put that link in the description. So folks uh, if you're interested in that, check that out in the description. They're really, really good and they're they're digestible. They're not uh, full length episodes like this will be um, really really good stuff i'm I'm excited to talk about it Bef- um, before we like get into the actual content here, I was curious how did you get into Foucault at all? Yeah, it's um I guess it's really hard.
1: Not to get into Foucault, if you do 20th century French philosophy, it's sort of like asking a mountaineer. You know, when did you first hear about the Rockies? Well, they're sort of, sort of pretty hard not to come across them. Um, he yeah. he's huge. He he, um, uh, in a a field sort of dominated by big names. He he is a, a giant of a name. Um, but saying that he wasn't huge in in my undergraduate, so mm. we were pretty much a Derrida cohort. Interesting. Um, the People who were lecturing us were, were working primarily on on Derrida. Um, and so I did one essay I think on Foucault as an undergrad, and then I only really came back to him seriously and you know rolled my sleeves up and said right let's let's just try and devour as much of him as I can yeah. when when I came to write the the PNR book, um, oh. so he's always he's always lurking, um, you know sort of on the margins. You can't do 20th century French philosophy and not you know not be aware of him. Um, but I, I, the first time I really tried to do injustice in his own terms was, was when I, uh, when I wrote the PNR book, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I forgot to do this already, but, uh, for those who haven't heard the first episode with us, you, you can go check that out. It's on Derrida. It's awesome. But, uh, if they haven't heard that, they won't know your credentials. And to some people, that's a huge deal. Can you just uh, fill us in again? Like wh- where did you do your, your studies?
1: Yep. So, um, undergraduate at, uh, Jesus college in Cambridge, it was French and German, um, studies which is a lot of literature a lot of philosophy um language obviously um and then uh, M. MPhil PhD in French philosophy still at Jesus college um looking at uh, three philosophers Maurice Merleau-Ponty and Jean-Luc Nancy mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, was fortunate enough to get a, a postdoc they're called junior research fellowships uh, at Cambridge, I moved over to Modeling College to work on uh, philosophical atheism hmm. for a couple of years uh, and then uh, got a job uh, lecturing as a temporary lecturer uh, at Murray Edwards College. So still moving around within Cambridge. I yeah. uh, did that for a couple of years. And then uh, in 2011, I was uh, fortunate enough to be offered a job uh, at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, uh, where I'm still working or where, near where uh, I live with my wife and two kids.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And it's always fun scheduling these with you because you're like a day ahead of me. <laughs> and so I always have to think <laughs> through, like, am I on the right day? Actually, before you showed up, I, I was double checking to make sure you're actually, I didn't uh, get the, the date wrong. So
1: yeah, I'm glad that look, we're here if you, and we in, did it. if you live in Australia, it becomes second nature to sort of know the time
0: zones <laughs> all the time because <laughs> no one is on the same time zone as you. That's awesome. Um, well, so I didn't I didn't know this about Foucault I I learned I didn't know he was so influential I, I learned about him uh, when I first started getting into apologetics back in like 2012 2013 and then I started learning learning about postmodernism and, and I was kind of late to the game and it was a little bit maybe uh, passe at that point but um, so I got into Foucault, Foucault and, and heard a little bit about him but in listening to maybe you and, and dr. Anderson uh, in one of your episodes uh, and then reading in the book you mentioned that uh, the stat from the Library of Congress. You mentioned that there's uh, like a thousand two hundred ninety nine books that are partially or wholly on Foucault. Is that? Did I get the number wrong? That's crazy. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
1: you'll find what you came for here and more.
0: So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Yeah, I think when I wrote the book, it was sort of 1,200 or so. Um, and it's, it's sort of rising all the time. Yeah. Foucault and architecture, Foucault and zoology and, you know, everything in
0: between. Yeah. Um, is that, man, that's so crazy to have that kind of influence. Did he write that much? Did he have like a, a broad enough scope or is this a lot of people saying like, wouldn't it be interesting to hear, to take Foucault's uh, stuff and, and put it in touch with biology? Yeah.
1: I think both of those really. Okay. So he he did have his finger in an extraordinary number of pies. You know, he's one of these French public intellectuals, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the like of which I think we it's fair to say we see see less and less in, in either in French culture or in Anglo uh, Saxon culture. Um he I, I was reflecting on this in, in preparation for the podcast, and I, I think why he's so influential and why people pick him up so much is that he gives us frameworks in terms of which we can think about everything the you know, mm. fundamental ways of approaching knowledge and reality that potentially make sense of everything that there is and and he does a lot of that himself you know so you'll hear him talking about literature you know novels don quixote and so forth he, he'll yeah. go into philosophy he'll sort of give you um give you a way of understanding kant he'll do art you know diego Velázquez and las meninas and so forth um he does the you know, history of penal reform, politics, culture, and I think if you wanted um, a, an equivalent figure in in sort of the Christian imagination, you might you might think of someone like Francis Schaeffer, mm. who who gives you these big sort of overarching ways of reading history and concepts and ideas that, that spark your imagination. You think, wow, that's a whole new way of approaching reality or metaphysics or ethics or whatever it is. And let me now go and think about how that relates to this other thing I've been thinking about recently. Yeah. Um and I think that's one of the reasons why Foucault is is so attractive that whatever your thing is, you know, whether it is architecture or zoology, yeah. you, you can you can read him and then think, there's a really interesting angle on this coming out of Foucault.
0: Okay. That's that's really fascinating and I I wonder if people know about the these huge public intellectuals when they're happening. Like I I just I was trying to think as you were speaking about who that might be because I think you're right that that they're diminishing. Does Jordan Peterson fit the bill today? <sighs> um yes, he's probably the closest we've
1: got, isn't he? I think as as i understand it um peterson is now mainly writing quote unquote popular books i'm mm. i'm not aware that his research agenda and, and his academic writing is continuing
0: yeah
1: um foucault would be different in that case so okay. so he was you know he was all over french television he was writing columns in newspapers and so forth he was interviewed uh, y- you know three times before breakfast mm. but he was still writing his indigestible academic tomes yeah. um, right up until his death and lecturing at the Collège de France, which is, you know, the prestigious elite French institution and organ of learning. Mm. So, so there are definitely overlaps with the way that, that Peterson has sort of begun with a particular disciplinary speciality and then ballooned out to be able to talk about everything and, and encompass the, the whole of life. Um, but but I think there are also significant differences. And of course, there would be huge differences in their politics as
0: well. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chris, do you think that do you think th- this is a tough question to even ask? What Was it because he was so um, man, I don't, I don't know if I can even ask it without sounding mean. Was it like the position that the, the position he had, you said, was really prestigious in, in France? If someone else had that position, would they have been Foucault? Or um, I know it's really hard. Like maybe we're we're crossing Lessing's ditch or something, and we're talking about it. Was it just the position that that we look to the the West? We look to the French philosophers, and we say that's the position of the philosopher, or um, or did he create that? It, did he did he bring some of that prestige from his own? Do you know what I'm asking here? Yeah, I think I I think I do. Look, so
1: his his prestige is not merely a function of his place in society. Okay. Um and he he was he was accorded that as a result of being groundbreaking okay. um in, in what he was thinking. Okay. And and I think I think part of that can be understood in terms of the cultural moment. So he's he's writing and he's publishing in, in the early 60s, um and and bubbling up in that period, you you have what comes to a crescendo in 1968, which is the student riots in Paris and the sort of near uh, overthrow of the the de Gaulle government and a real change of generation, a little bit like the swinging sixties in in the sort of the UK, where th- that there's a generational shift. And I yeah. think w- one thing that we can say about Foucault's philosophy, very generally, is that. It ain't your grandfather's philosophy. You know, <laughs> sure. he's he's not simply doing another reading of the classic philosophers in okay. in the the sort of veneration, the mode of veneration of them. Um and there's a certain iconoclasm to it. Um he has this idea called problematization where he wants to take the things that we take for granted and assume and and show how they're not as obvious as as we think they are. And and there that fits very much with the spirit of sixty-eight. Um, you know, we we don't want to simply follow the the morality of uh, uh, of, of our grandparents' generation. Uh, we want to do things differently. And and Foucault gives people tools to rethink traditions and and ways of understanding reality that that are ingrained and, and that often we we don't question. So there's certainly that dynamic to him. He he scratches where people are itching in the sixties. Yeah. I
0: think it would be fair to say. Okay, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, it's really helpful. What a weird time! What an what an interesting and 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 odd time. Um, so let's get into Foucault's project then, because people are thinking like, what's the big deal with him? Um, you you also had this this stat that he's the all time most cited author across every academic discipline uh, from the arts to the hard science. and that's from Google Scholar. So it's just it's so crazy to think that. I I, I don't think I would have guessed that. Um, what what's his project? Like what's his, what's he getting at that, that made him so groundbreaking?
1: He is getting at the fact that the way we understand the world isn't set in stone, I guess is one way of putting it. Mm. So if, if we go back to someone like Immanuel Kant, um, you know, the great sort of watershed of, of, of modern critical philosophy, um, Kant is, is bringing this, this huge idea into philosophy that there's something called the, the a priori, that there's categories of my understanding in terms of which I make sense of the world. So, you know, he would say in the first critique that, that time and space are categories of my understanding. They're not necessarily out there in the world. Mm-hmm. They're ways in which I inevitably and necessarily make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was sort of huge and revolutionary uh, in philosophy. And, and what foucault does in a se- is in a sense he he takes that idea and he says, okay, there is this a priori way of making sense of reality. there are categories in terms of which we understand everything but they're not eternal and so he has this thing that he calls a historical a priori that the, the categories and, and moves that we make to try and understand stuff changes actually mm. over time and he tries to map the way in which different cultural ages have thought very, very differently about things like how truth is produced and 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 how the good life is lived and that sort of thing. And and his project, I guess, in all the different books he's writing, to the extent that you can, you know, generalize and, and simplify in this way, is saying, look at how things have changed over time. Look at how people used to understand madness or medical knowledge or sexuality. Um, and and that shows us that the way we understand reality is not given. It's not obvious. Not everyone has always thought like we think.
0: Right. Um,
1: and I think yeah, you know, on the surface, that is a, a valuable remark to make. It, it prevents us from falling into what C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery, right. as if you know we stand at the peak of intellectual endeavor and everybody's been trying to, to scramble up to where we are and sadly not made it because we're the ones who are, who know (laughs) everything. Um, and, and Foucault, you know, puts a stone in the shoe of that sort of arrogance and says, um, uh, people haven't thought like you and therefore why do you think that the way that you think is better than everybody else's?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And when I first got, when I first heard about postmodernism, it was from a lot of, uh, it was from people who were, I would say, very modern, uh, very modernist. They were modernists and the way they thought about objective truth and the way they thought about the world and the perspective that you should have was super modernist. And they were like, this is bad stuff. And I thought, okay, postmodernism type stuff. And I wanted to ask you about that too. Like if, if he's rightfully called a postmodernist, whatever that means. But when I started actually reading some of these guys for myself and, and learning about them a little bit more, I thought. This is a this is a good corrective to post uh, to modernism to this this certain way of thinking. Um, but it's not everything. Like we it absolutely, I can't be a postmodernist. But as a Christian, it was kind of fun to see. Oh well, the modernists and the postmodernists. I think attacking each other point out some good things that a, a Christian can can utilize and say, Hey, both of you guys are wrong on some stuff here. And actually, if you'd work together, you might be able to see things more fully. Um, I I think I think of and this is a caricature, but the modernists like elevating this third person perspective, the objective world and the postmodernists coming along and saying, hey, look, there's more to the world than the objective world because you're losing the subjects. Uh, And then they maybe push up the subjects a little bit too much. And and a Christian wants to say, hey, yeah, we don't have God's point of view, but we're made in his image and we do see truth and the way that he made us to see it um yeah yeah yeah
1: just on that I think so this is moving away a little bit from Futo, but what you're saying is so fascinating I think I think on that subjective objective distinction that the bible's got a really subversive position that actually says that the moment you set things up as an opposition between subjective and objective you've already mm. loaded the dice too much mm. uh, and so the I think that the Bible would say, along with, with the modernists, there is, there is a right understanding. Yeah. Uh, there is a, um, a proper way to, to see reality.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but along with the, the postmodernists, the, I think the Bible would say it's not ours. We don't have full um, command of that way. Yeah. But it, it's not objective. It's not a view from nowhere. It's actually God's view. And right. so that makes it sound quite subjective. It, it, it is a uh, particular view, but hmm. the view belongs to God. And he's not like any other perspective. You know, he, hes you can't just say he's just like a big version of us. He's got a perspective. <laughs> like, that's not how the creator-creature distinction works. Right. And so uh, you, you don't get far into this subjective-objective dichotomy before you find that the Bible just blows it up. Mm-hmm. It puts a bomb in the middle of it. It says those categories are not sufficient to, to grasp the way in which uh, 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 a universe works, in which there's a God who's not part of the universe, uh, and yet He's not nothing. He's not a view from nowhere. Yeah, uh, He's God, and and so I think not not only do you. So what I'm saying is, you don't split the difference between subjective and objective. You're saying yeah, it's a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. You know, the modernists are right here, the postmodernists are right there. Uh, I think if you let the Bible set its own table from the beginning and, and, and put the pieces in place on the board as it wants to. You, you, you can't go very far before you find that the subjective objective dichotomy is just too small yeah. to contain what the Bible is doing.
0: Yeah. Well, there's so many good things. I, I won't go down the, the rabbit trail any, any further, but uh, for, for those interested in, in this there, I did an episode with Linda, Dr. Linda Zagzebski, and she, she talks about omni subjectivity and it's very much like you were just saying, Chris, where it's, yeah, the the view the objective view is also this view from every perspective and it cuz he's he's God and he's um omniscient and he's omnipresent. So, um every folks go check that one out as well. Um bringing it bringing it back, that was so good. It's so hard not to, but um maybe we could just really quick would you call Foucault a postmodernist and maybe is that word even of any value anymore? Um it's horses
1: for courses, isn't it? If if you're, you know, sort of for for a, a, a non-specialist audience, just trying to put some pins in a map, uh, and you know, say, well, look, is he is he modernist or postmodernist? You got to choose one of those. Then it's not it's not an utterly unhelpful designation. Hmm. Um, I I think as soon as you start getting into any level of detail, though, it's probably going to trip you up more than it's going to help you. Okay. Um, it's. Uh, I, am very tempted to just deal with people in their own right, you know, deal with yeah. Derrida as Derrida and deal with Foucault as Foucault. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you do use a term like postmodernism, you know, and I'm not saying don't do it. I don't want to be a sort of absolutist sure. or, a, you know, to be, um, I think there's an unhelpful a purism that says, oh, you mustn't use words like this ever. Yeah. And, you know, okay. you know we, we use language in different ways in different contexts. It's fine. But, I think what we want to avoid is the idea that there is this monolithic idea called postmodernism, and everyone we put in that book, it thinks exactly the same because they do. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I think that's really good. Uh, one thing, again, I, I noticed about you that's so helpful is that you you reemphasize because I I tried to, to use Derrida's on our last episode. I tried to use Derrida's uh, own terminology and try to like place you know Christian theology. In, and you said again, well, the Bible's got to set its own table. And I really appreciate that about you because not only do you think that the Bible has set its own table, and it and it does have concepts that are from within, that you know you, you shouldn't um, force it into someone else's grid, but you also do the hard work of figuring out, out everyone else's grid. You know, you figured out Derrida's, you figured out Foucault's. I think um, what's missing sometimes in in some thinkers that I admire uh, and respect in their own right is they'll do one or the other and, and maybe they'll focus on the Bible sets its own table. That's that. Um, so anyone else is wrong. Or they'll say, look, here's, you know, here's this new postmodern. I'm going to write a book called who's afraid of postmodernism and maybe reinterpret some theology in light of that. So I just think, I just wanted to to uh, commend you, man. I, I really appreciate what you do and the way you do it. And uh, I'm even, I'm, I'm tempted to grab these categories. So I, I always appreciate you saying that the Bible sets its own table.
1: And and I think there's biblical imperative for that, isn't there? There's there's the, the idea of treat other people as as you want them to treat yeah. you. And yeah. I I I wouldn't want people to try and force me into their categories. And so, you know, I I it's healthy, isn't it, to extend the same courtesy to them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, okay, so so getting back to Foucault, am, am I pronouncing that right, by the way? Can you just say it for us? Is it Michel Foucault? Yeah, absolutely. All right, okay, cool, cool. Because I get I get I get a hard time because I say Pensies because I'm an American swine instead of Ponce. Um but getting back to Foucault, um, you mentioned that he writes uh he writes stories and he uses stories. And uh if anyone's kind of familiar with the modernist, postmodernist types that they'll see why people would categorize them that way because they think, Oh, postmodernists use stories, and maybe they're just pulling that from Foucault himself. But um, in your lecture series you you did an awesome job of using stories in in the same way I thought that was awesome because you were using that tool. Can you can you help us out like why does Foucault think stories are a helpful tool for um philosophizing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It, it I'm really glad you asked the question because it it allows me to um to sort of stop a, a couple of rabbit holes, stop people mm-hmm. going down a couple of uh Unhealthy habits. So he writes stories, which doesn't mean that he makes things up. Mm. Um, you know, he's not he's not writing a novel. Um, mm. He's not sort of you know just imagining what things might be like. Um, the thing about stories, and one of the reasons they're really compelling, I think, for Foucault is that they they begin with the concrete. So they're not abstract theories floating thirty thousand feet above reality. You start usually, you know, with with, with individuals in stories. Um, so you're not generalizing. Mm-hmm. And that is very much how he does his historical work. So he won't sort of come to a particular historical moment and say, you know, let me give you the three principles that are governing the way that people think here. He'll, he'll start literally with a little story or a vignette. So when he's writing The, the History of Madness, uh, the first pages of that book are about the the ship of fools mm-hmm. that sails around the waterways of, of medieval Europe, um, you know, with uh, people who, who today we would, would class perhaps as, as mentally ill. Um, uh, and, and he elaborates from that. So he begins with the concrete and he tries to draw general principles out of that. And and that's how stories work. You know, they begin with a particular narrative and then you sort of elaborate upon that to think, well, what does that say about the human condition and so forth? Yeah. Um, and I think also stories are so very revealing, about who we are the stories we like and the stories we tell ourselves um are hugely informative so if you think about some iconic little story like take you know for example the the 1984 apple super bowl ad where you've got these these rows of of sort of um zombie-like people just conforming to the the you know the Status quo of the PC world, and then this this wonderfully, brilliantly lit woman comes up with a sledgehammer and smashes the screen. Oh, okay. And you know, now we know 1984 won't be like 1984 because we got this new computer, <laughs> and isn't it wonderful? Um, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's talking about the, the, the story of liberating oneself from conformism, becoming your own person, striking out, doing something different, buying this product as opposed to that product. <laughs> but we'll just, we'll just put that one side, yeah. And, and and it's it's such a deep story about our our contemporary culture. Like that is who we want to think of ourselves as being. Like no one wants to say, "Hey, I'm I'm one of those those drones. I'm one of those guys just sitting watching the screen." That's no no no. We we want to think of ourselves as a woman running down with a sledgehammer, and you know I'm I'm overturning convention. Anyway, and and all of that is is tightly wound up in a story, in a way that if you try to get people to articulate. You know, how do you see conformity? You might get some semi-interesting answers, but I don't think it'd be as powerful as the story. So there's something visceral, something um, very existential about stories that that reveal uh, where a culture is at. And and I think that's partly why he's fixing on these uh, on these narratives
0: as well. Okay. Um so we mentioned Jordan Peterson just a little bit and he's he's very big on myths and um the Christian audience will know that you know C.S. Lewis was big on on myths as well and probably mean different things by those but um do what terminology did, did Foucault like did he did he like stories or did he did he use myths was are they synonymous or
1: I think he would hesitate to to use the sort of myths that Peterson and, and Carl Jung use okay. um, precisely because they're, they're sort of timeless in the way that, that Peterson and Jung talk about them. Yeah. But, you know, Peterson will go back to, to sort of the way that lobsters behave and say essentially, you know, we're, there's a lot of that still in us. Yeah. Um, Foucault is more interested in how uh, we're, we're not like how people have always been Hmm. and therefore to suggest that there are these overarching myths that never change these archetypes that that sort of structure human experience over time um it, i think he'd be very reluctant to to embrace an idea like that and and partly he's just that's not what he's interested in yeah um what he's interested in is why in the renaissance period would people think that because the little fruit aconite is is white with a little black dot in the middle of it and therefore looks like an eye, <laughs> it is therefore obviously going to be useful for treating eye ailments because that's the way they constructed knowledge. There, there's an affinity there. You know, it yeah. looks like an eye It's going to be useful for curing eyes. And so what, what he's doing is, what, what do you have to assume for a view like that to make sense to you? And why does that seem just so weird yeah. to us now? And as a result, what are the assumptions that we're making that to people yeah. in two hundred years time are going to be like? They thought that. How on <laughs> earth can
0: you construct truth that way? That's just weird. Yeah. Um, did he? Do you know if he if he thought? Well, first, is that a, a episteme? I don't know. There's like if it's Greek, and some people say episteme or episteme or whatever. Um, first of all, can you pronounce it for us? Uh, and then is that what is that an a episteme or uh, episteme um in english
1: i'd say episteme okay um oh, I, doesn't really matter does it <laughs> <I can't laughs> we communicate effectively um yes yes this is his idea of epistemes. okay that, that he, uh, that's the language that he uses at a particular moment in his thinking um and he he breaks down the history of um well, Western thinking. Some people would say, "No, he's just focusing on French thinking, and that's one of his problems. He's not looking further afield." But ah. the, 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 the history of the thinking that he looks at, anyway, mm. in terms of of three key cultural moments that that in in some texts he calls epistemes. So okay. we've got the the, the Renaissance episteme, uh, which is your your Aconite moment. Um, yeah. You know, you treat eye ailments with things that
0: look like eyes. That's the story that he's grabbing. Then the, the, he's grabbing that story, and he's starting from there to to show the the main yeah All that
1: cultural assumption. So that that example of a way that people think. Gotcha. You know, yeah, so he nice. would say then, okay, so people think that about aconite. Why? Like, what is what is the principle that's that shaping that way of thinking about how we treat eye ailments? Yeah, um, and it's it's also the moment that you get in um, Shakespeare's Macbeth where I think it's after the murder of Duncan, um, there's a huge storm. um, And, you know, the idea is that the natural disorder and and, and chaos in the natural world is is mirroring disorder and chaos in in the social hierarchy. And that's sort of, well, of course it would, you know, at the time. That's not, oh, what a nice little imaginative twist. That's like, yeah, no, that happens. Like, that that is how things work. And so that's your, your renaissance period, where there are affinities between lots of different things in lots of different areas that we today would want to put hard borders between and say, no, this has no effect on them. And then you've got what he calls the classical period, which is your sort of Descartes moment where you're you're measuring, you're representing, you've got this objective view of the world that's emerging from your your rigorous calculations. Uh, And then the the third is the the modern episteme and, and the real watershed moment here is Kant. Uh, and what Kant does is he says, it's all very nice to represent and classify, but what about you who are doing the representing and the hmm. classifying? Like y- you've got skin in this game. You can't just abstract yourself as if you're not there and imagine that it's all wonderfully objective. And this is where you get, again, this idea of that the categories of your understanding is shaping what you're seeing. You think it's all out there in the world, but it's actually, it's actually in here. Yeah. Um, and then the, the modern episteme problematizes the idea um, of this this beautifully transparent, objective uh, world. Um, but that, that actually stops around, interestingly, around sort of Nietzsche time. And mm. Foucault is very reticent to talk about his own period. And I think there's something really healthy about that instinct, which is we're so close to the way that we think that it's really, really hard to sort of pull ourselves out of our skin and look at ourselves from the outside and say, these are my blind spots, you know, by definition. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So your blind spots, you don't know about them. Yeah. Uh, and so I think at one point he says, look, if we want to think about our own moment, we probably want to start with Nietzsche, but he hmm. doesn't actually do that.
0: Um, okay. Himself. Yeah. I I heard you, um, I heard you mention that in in one of your lectures and I thought it was so great. And, and you were... You also did a good job not to push it too hard and say, therefore, he's self-defeating, because perhaps this his whole uh, project of epistemes, um is just a product of his moment. And therefore, we can't know. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's just, you know, it's an interesting fact and we should press him on it. But it doesn't mean it's a completely self-defeating thing. And let's not let's still treat him fairly here. Yeah, I like and that. It, and yeah. look, if,
1: if that's self-defeating, we can all go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like what's the what's the point yeah. of conjecturing anything? Because mm. you're always speaking from a particular position. Oh yeah. And, that's a good point. You know, so what's the point of, of trying to say anything?
0: Yeah. I, I was reminded again, louis Lewis, C.S. Lewis pops up in my head all the time, but um Lewis says something about like uh, reading old books so that you can avoid some of the errors of your modern time. And I thought, you know, that is that is fascinating because um Foucault yeah. is is reading a lot of history. You know, he he's trained as a Uh, a philosopher and I believe a psychologist, but then he's doing a lot of this historical work, which is really, really fun. Really interesting. Do you know, are his epistemes are they, um, I know he's more interested in actually like looking at the episteme than like the actual particulars of what they believed. He's, he's looking at like the necessary condition, like you said, to allow them to believe such a thing. Is it like a paradigm? Is it like, you know, Thomas Kuhn's like, is it of these paradigm shifts or is it something more loose than that? Um it's it's a little bit less total than that. Ah,
1: okay. So both Kuhn's paradigm shifts and especially the idea of worldview is is as as it's usually articulated intended to be, you know, this is the the fundamental way that people are thinking in this particular period, and that's sort of encapsulates everything, or at least it's often the implication that mm-hmm. it encapsulates everything. Um, and, and he doesn't want to go that far. And again, I, th- I think there's something really healthy about this instinct. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm building something out that, that that I think, you know, is indicative of a certain historical moment. And I think it does grant real insight into it. But he's I don't think he's ever attempting to say, you know, this is the final word. And I've said everything there is to say. And this is a mm-hmm. total picture of this this period of history, partly because methodologically he's dead set against that. Yeah. And against the sort of philosophers who do that, but but also I think because that's a huge claim to make, isn't it? You know, for any individual after having read a bunch of books and done a bunch of thinking, say, "Hey, I know how they thought three hundred years ago." It's like, okay, but you better be able to back that up because right. that's it's quite an arrogant claim in many ways. Seriously.
0: Yeah, um, and, and speaking of of, of totalizing, uh, perhaps arrogant claims. Uh, one of one of the foils, maybe it wasn't a foil, but someone who he, uh, Foucault is, in, is set in di- distinction to is, is Hegel and uh, and and Marx and their view of totalizing mm-hmm. history. Um, can you can you help us out with with Hegel, like understanding Hegel, his uh, his project and how Foucault is is different?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. I think it, it brings a lot of things into focus. I think in the book. I, I do it in terms of four oppositions. So I'll try and rehearse those. Mm-hmm. So so Hegel thinks of history in terms of progress. He has this this idea that um it's more a word that's used about him than than a word that's really um uh, uh, sort of present in his uh uh own writing of you know this thesis, antithesis, and synthesis.
0: Yeah, that, didn't that he, he use it could... in reference to Kant or something, right? Like I think yeah, only... it, you, you
1: struggle to find much
0: of that in Hegel. Yeah. Um, but but basically the idea is
1: that history is progressing. It's progressing in a particular sort of way, but it's progressing. Uh, and you can, you can tell the story of it gradually maturing. And, and what, what is maturing according to Hegel is this thing called Geist, spirit mm-hmm. or mind. Um, and so it, it's this beautiful sort of modern idea of of everything is going somewhere. And of course, it sort of comes from Augustine originally, this philosophy mm. of history, but it's, it's been changed quite a lot. Uh, and lo and behold, Hegel says that uh, the modern German state is, is the epitome of it. So, you know, hooray, we've arrived yeah. <laughs> quite conveniently. Um, and uh, Foucault says, no, history isn't a smooth progress. History is is a series of ruptures. Uh, and so you won't find Foucault explaining the difference between the different epistemes, Like how did we get from the Renaissance yeah. to the... Uh, to the classical episteme, um, he he doesn't go to town on that because yeah. for him, that's not what history is about. It's not that there's this wonderful progress and all the epistemes string together like sort of beads on a string and then finally we're going to get to the perfect one. Um, uh, that, so that history is about ruptures, not for progress. That's the first opposition. Yeah. Um, and he also really doesn't like this idea of history that thinks of it as the study of, quote-unquote, great men. Hmm. Um and, you know, so Hegel, for example, will say that Napoleon is the world spirit on horseback, you know, as, as if history sort of congeals and crystallizes around these great world historical figures, yeah. almost all of whom are men. Hmm. And Foucault says, no, it's not, that's not really the way that history works. It's more about concepts, not consciousness. Um, And the way in which different concepts and ways of of approaching the world govern our understanding of things at particular moments. So it's not all about Napoleon, for example, but it is all about, you know, uh, representation in the classical period and categorization and that sort of thing. Um, the, The third thing that marks him out is that he's not, and this might sound really weird to begin with, he's not that bothered about what was said. At a particular moment in history. Yeah. Um, or at least not as an end in itself. What he wants to get to is what it was possible to say at a particular moment in history, what it made sense to say, the thought of sort of moves that you could make, and people would say, Yep, yeah, that's right, that works. Yeah. Um, and so he's not, you know, sort of forensically going to analyze, I don't know. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in and of itself, what he'll want to do is what were the sort of things that made sense to say about race or about society at that point where people would say, yes, that's something that makes sense, even if they didn't believe it. Um, And so he he talks about this as trying to get to the unthought of a particular period. And, And I think in the book, I try and because this is it, it's quite a tricky concept. He, he I, I try and explain it in terms of um, a, an app and an operating system. And like all analogies, it's got its limits. But basically, sure. what is said in a particular historical period is like an app. It's, it's what you see. Um, it's what you directly interact with. But of course, that app needs an operating system to run on, which defines certain operations. You know, it, it defines what sort of code makes sense and what sort of code causes an error. And and what he's trying to get to is this operating system level. What sort of things can make sense and can count as truth at a particular moment in history? And the the fourth thing. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 please.
1: Yeah, yeah. just to finish off this this series of four. And we've already talked about this, so I can be really brief. Um, He doesn't like history as totality. You know, Hegel is, is by par excellence, the historian of totality like mm-hmm. everything is included for hegel like from the ancient egyptians he does christ and the incarnation and the resurrection right up to the present day there's like nothing off limits for hegel right um and, and Foucault says no that's again that's overreach um we're never going to be able to encompass everything and he so he doesn't try to he has a a fragmentary understanding of, of history you know but, and still in a Shafirian way he gives you a lot a big overview but he's never saying I've, I've encapsulated the whole, and that would be inimical to his uh, approach.
0: Yeah. Okay. There, there's so much good stuff. there. so, so fascinating. Um, I guess initially I'll, I'll go with this one. Uh, Hegel, like, man, really focusing on Geist and it's kind of like the world soul discovering itself or becoming itself kind of thing. And, and the process folks grabbed that and ran with it. And it seems very personal, right? It's like some people categorize it as absolute idealism. Um, and we can even know the, the the mental more than the the physical. Uh, is Fu can w- would you categorize Foucault as being like subpersonal? It's it sounds like he's not emphasizing beliefs as much, or but he's also not like a physical determinist. He's not saying that these things had to happen. He's actually saying the opposite. He refuses to say this was a ne- necessity of history or something. What what do you, what role does he have for like personal explanations? Do do you know? Um, it's a really good question. I, I just
1: hesitate at the, the term subpersonal, to the extent that it suggests that the person is the sort of the epitome of explanation. Mm. Um, I, I think, look, he, he, he problematizes again, mm. uh, persons a lot and he shows how, um, the the modern subject in a cartesian sense you know subject and object the subject who does the perceiving and the manipulating of the world how that's that's really been constructed um and again it's not obvious not everybody has thought in terms of these these subjects who are sort of manipulating the world and so what, what what he does with persons is he shows how they are um functions of particular ways of, of of constructing reality. You know, we we have had various different ideas of human beings or persons over time, uh, and, and none of them is therefore necessary. Yeah. And so he has this very famous quote where he says something like, uh, uh, man, by which he means humanity, is is an invention of recent date, uh, and one that is um, sort of reaching its end. And mm. what, what he means that is that about that is is the way that we've constructed the human of humanism uh, as sort of the knowing subject the subject that's manipulating the world as an object and so forth um and again it's it's not that we you know whatever we are don't exist it's that we've we've always got to build up this sense of what a human being or what a subject is in some way and none of those ways are universal um and they they come and go yeah. over time uh, and so I think that's one of the reasons that he doesn't want to see um, consciousness or, or, or persons right at the centre of history, because then how does that make sense over time? Because
0: our sense of who we are and what we are changes. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. I, 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 I even think from a from my own personal perspective, uh, just that bit about about how the um, the modern. The, the view of man is a modern conception or it's, it's coming to an end. Um, I think of that with myself where I, I think of myself a certain way and someone will say something or I'll get criticism that's like strikes right at the core and it's real. Like it's not just hurtful, but it's like, oh, wow, that's really good. And it changes the way I think of myself or I'll get a grade that I didn't think that I, I was going to get. And it. I've constructed this view of myself and I, I usually see it as God's grace saying, not quite. You know, or, or or here you go, or here's a more realistic view. And sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. But yeah, I've can I have a view of myself that gets kind of torn down, and, and I think that's nice. That's a kind of a nice way to think to to broaden that back out to this uh, this culture's view of mankind. Uh, yeah, and it and it it can come to an end, and it might not be wholly accurate. Hmm.
1: And I, I think I think that's really helpful. And you you have this wonderful skill of being able to, to, to bring things sort of into um, everyday life with you. And I really appreciate the the way that you did that just then. I I think another thing that he would say is that you're never going to really get to the, to the nub of things if you just focus on, on, on individuals, because we're all, you know, and this is me now, and I'm not, don't want to put words into a mouth. We're we're all children of our age, you know, however much we would like to rebel against that, the very idea that we want to rebel against that mm. just makes us more children of, of this right. particular age. You cannot get away from it. You know, we're all the, the culture is not something out there that we yeah. can keep at arm's length. It's always already part of us. There is no us without it. Um, not that, that that we're sort of powerless and and just sort of have absorbed it unthinkingly. And this is one one really helpful thing that Foucault does. I think he he says that. Um, the construction of subjects is always an interplay of power and resistance and you need both of them. So he's not just saying, you know, you've, you've got this cultural chip in your brain and there's nothing you can do about it. And you're a child of your age. And so just suck it up. Yeah. Um, but he is saying, don't, don't be so naive please as to think that culture is something out there, um, uh, you know, on the, the the computer screen or whatever. And it's not already in here. He said, it's right. always already in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, so okay, so so getting to to the rupture and what makes sense to say at a certain period of time, and and I, I was thinking of MLK and you know his I am I have a dream. Um, uh, Foucault would would not be as interested, and that's not like a mean thing or anything, but he's looking at well, how does this even make sense to say at this time? Does um, is that an episteme? Is is he saying that this is an this is an episteme? If if like the the speech is that part of an episteme or is that an episteme in itself
1: um well first of all he he's he's always as i as i said cautious to speak about his own historical moment oh yeah
0: okay That's um, right.
1: so if we take another example so he he begins um he's uh, a very uh arresting image um in uh, discipline and punish he begins with the torture of of damians the regicide um, in in the history of France. and i i 'll save your viewers and listeners the details but but yeah. safe to say that if there's a way of torturing people that was available uh, at the time, then Damiens was tortured in that way you okay. know, he' is, he is um brutally tortured uh, and then foucault opposes that very um sort of physically intense torture to um uh, a, a, a sort of Monastic way of organising life that comes a century or so later, um, written by a guy called Leon Fouché, uh, which is you know everybody in this uh, dormitory will will get up at this hour and then at that hour we'll have breakfast and there'll be a bell and then we'll and and he's he's saying that both of these are characteristic of a way of understanding power, um, okay. it's sovereign power and disciplinary power. It happens to be at, at different moments in history, and so he'll begin with that. Individual event, and and he'll try and say, what does this tell us about the way that power is being conceived? You know, yeah. and they say with with the torture of Damien's that the idea is that that the king's body is also the the body of the nation in a very real sense. Mm. And so, if you if you attack the king, you are you are ravaging the body of the nation, and therefore your body deserves to be ravaged. Mm. In hence, hence the the, the horrific. Uh, torture that, that, that Damien's was subjected to, uh, and he'll say, you know, with with the second example, um, that's not the way that, that power is thought of anymore. Power is thought of now in terms of of the the, the regulation of of bodies, the rhythming and, and patterning, if you like, of of bodies. Uh, and he'll say, this all started when rifles became part of the military, and you couldn't just sort of throw hordes of soldiers at problems anymore, hmm. and, and a few of them dying and And you can hope, hope to win a battle that way you've got to train people now and the the army that can load their rifles the fastest is the army the army that's going to win, so you need to optimize the use of the body to win warfare and then that balloons to the whole of society mm. uh, and you get a, a society that runs by the clock and so wow. he's he's beginning with these individual examples but that then that are indicative and that say something really important about the way that that power is construed at a particular moment. Um, and so what he may do, what he may have done with something like the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. example is to say, well, what is this showing us about the way in which this particular society is thinking about power? And um, so he wouldn't have ignored what King said, but he would have used it as a way to try, I think, to try and get at something broader.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Uh- do i guess my my question is about ruptures and whether that is um like rupturing a particular uh episteme i know that he like sartre, sartre or sart uh kind of cr- criticized him for saying he, re- he replaces cinema with a slideshow um there's there's movement without success without or with the succession of mobile structures and it's kind of like uh um yeah jonathan edwards like occasionalism or something like there's these slots and there's no trend um i i I get that but it. i'm wondering about do do ruptures make a new episteme or um or i know he wouldn't say totalizing but it's it seems kind of like the episteme is like totalizing even the rupture so that even the ruptures make sense within there when it it seems like the rupture should be a brand new thing especially in the 60s i know he wouldn't say his own time and stuff but do, do you get what i'm getting at there
1: um, i i think so let let me answer okay. what i think you're saying and then sure. you can correct me so I, I don't think he would be saying that every episteme starts you know ex nihilo okay. um that, be, be, because you know we can't forget everything we've ever known about everything yeah um but, but what what he's doing i think is is trying to point to um shifts not just in surface phenomena like in 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 what we're what we're talking about you know we used to be talking about this now we talk about that Um, but but things that make the way we used to engage with the world just seem wrong or even weird like Uh. not understandable now so you know so when again to use the example of aconite when we look back on that And think, like, why would something being white with a black dot in the middle mean, in any conceivable universe, (laughs) like, why would the first thought that came into your head be, aha, that's going to cure my eye problem? Like, it's just so foreign, so strange Mm. to us now. And it's that sort of distinction that he wants to make, the the changes that mean that the the, the old way of of looking at things becomes really a a foreign country, a distant
0: reality to us. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, Um, I do this with my wife sometimes and we'll just be, we'll look at an old picture or something and be like, can you believe this? Or, or, you know, we, we'll think back on like, like racism and, and, and different parts of that. Like, can you, can you believe that? Does, does that make any sense? Or, um, you know, even something as trivial as like smoking cigarettes and being like everyone in these old movies, that, that was cool. And now we're all like, yeah, well, that's gross. You know, um, is, is it, is it a bit of that or no? Yeah, absolutely. And I think okay. just as a little footnote on that, that's the reason
1: why Christianity seems so weird mm. to so many people in, in society at the moment. Um, you know, if it, it used to be that pretty much everything in society gave you a little picture of how God worked, you know, so there'd be, you know, way back when there'd be, there'd be the king who, you know, in a very imperfect and often abusive way, related to the country as, as you know, the Bible uses the language of, of kingship yeah. to talk about God. Um, and, and the whole of society will be organized in a way that that made God sort of understandable. But if you look at the way that society is organized today, you know, I I have a, a plethora of, of coffee choices, you know, I can buy whatever. <laughs> Clothes I want. Uh, I can, within reason, but certainly historically speaking, choose whatever career I want in a way that, you know, to an extent, that was was unimaginable. Um, I vote in elections, and then you, you you sort of speak into to that sort of situation. With oh, there's 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 one Lord and King of the universe.
0: Yeah.
1: By the way, uh, <laughs> who who has who has who has given his commands and revealed himself? And and it's not that people necessarily think that's wrong. It's just what universe is that part of? Because everything in my life is i'm Mm. the one in control i'm the one making choices it's my decision what i buy what i don't buy you know i'm i'm the center of it all and now you're coming with this weird idea that i'm actually not the center of it and it's it's, it just doesn't make sense yeah and so i think this idea of of epistines being a foreign land you know could be um helpful to christians in just Conceptualizing how weird some people find Christianity, most yeah. people find Christianity today, and not not just intellectually, not just because the arguments are, are found to be wrong, but because so much of of contemporary life seems to be telling a different story mm. uh, to, to the story that the Bible is telling at the moment. And you know of course, there are nuances and, and so forth, and a lot of it is Christian in in um, in inspiration but but i think nevertheless there's something something to dwell on and something to think about
0: there. that that's fantastic yeah again um I, I got into philosophy through apologetics type stuff and it was to to various degrees of success and and some are or some apologists are way worse than others and and some are really you know really awesome but um thinking about the choice thing and i'm just as you're talking i imagined being in um being in Walmart in the cereal section and just seeing all these choices and then me witnessing to someone and saying, there's one, there's one choice here and just surrounded in a sea of choices where you are the one picking, not just this Oreo, but the double stuffed Oreo that is orange for Halloween. And, you know, because you wanted it, then it's really, really fascinating to think I've never really thought about it. Um, in, in that cultural aspect before. That. Uh,
1: and the idea, sorry, pa, you've, you've yeah. got me going now. Um, and it's nothing to do with Foucault, is it? <laughs> Never mind. This is interesting. Yeah. Um. And, and also the idea that that is so unproblematic for us. Mm. I, I think that's the, uh, it's, it's not simply that we choose, but that choose, like, of course we yeah. choose. Like yeah. what on earth else could possibly be acceptable? Mm. It's It's that that mm. makes it really tricky.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really fascinating. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I I can't let us, uh, I can't go without talking about power because um, everyone will will hear Foucault and go, okay, what about power? Everything's power, right? And uh, for those who are listening only, the background is uh, Schoolhouse Rock. Knowledge is power. And you can, actually can't see because our faces are in the way anyways. But um, for, those, for those familiar with that, you know, uh, and who aren't familiar, I guess. Schoolhouse Rock is a American little cartoon show that would teach us about stuff. And uh, I, I forgot the jingle. I think it's um, learning is cool because knowledge is power. And I thought, you know, it definitely says knowledge is power, which is fun. Um, but, you know, listen to, listening to your work and reading your book, um, I was con- super confused on Foucault and his view of power. Um, can you... Help us with like the the now knowledge and power play and power games. I think that people misrepresent this a lot,
1: yeah, um i th- i think I think they do, but I think it's easy to misrepresent. it's quite okay. a it's quite a tricky concept because we you know when when you say power. Um, we, we tend to have this idea of, you know, the people with power are the people at the top, it's the president, it's it's the, you know, the big institutions of society, the police or whoever, you know, that's where the power is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of us little people are just being pushed around by them. You know, it's, it's one way of thinking about power. Um, and that's not Foucault's way. Yeah. Um, so he, he um, and, and this is part of the reason that, you know, he doesn't like this great men view of history is, is that he would say that's, that's missing so much of of what's going on and what's important. And the the sort of locus classicus of this in his work is a little quotation where he says, we must cut off the head of the king, by which he means stop thinking about power as just being focused at at the top. That's not how it works Mm. in society. Um, And so he talks about relations of power, uh, not just power itself as this sort of Thing out there like a slab of butter that you've either got more or less of it but, but relations of power um and he's really reluctant to to define it but i did find at one point in his work he he does um offer the idea that that power is action upon the action of others and i think that's a really helpful definition because it shows us that that power is 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 um ubiquitous so any time that i influence what anyone else does, I think, or says, um, it is is an instance of power. And of course that doesn't just happen from the government down. In fact, it probably doesn't happen a a huge amount from the government down if we if we're honest about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I don't need to be quote unquote a powerful person to have influence on on the actions of others. Um, But it also means that not everything is power. So I think sometimes people can sort of stumble into the opposite extreme and say, well Foucault says everything is power. No, no, no. It's it's not um uh it's not the case that 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 it's one of these concepts that becomes useless because it suddenly describes everything and therefore it describes nothing yeah. it, it, it is action upon the action of others which which influences others which which can be very his beautiful metaphor for understanding is capillary you know how how the the, the human body is crisscrossed with thousands of tiny little capillaries yeah. so he's saying it's not one huge throbbing Aorta, you know, like the king who just runs through the whole thing. Yeah, and um, power is distributed in capillary ways in society. And this is also one reason. It's probably worth just noting this at some point in the podcast that he's really not Marxist. He doesn't like Marx, right? And um, because he, he says that for Marx, there's one great locus of refusal in society. There's one climactic revolutionary event, and that's the way we're going to change things. And again, that's far too centralized. It's far too aorta-like for Foucault. And he says there are thousands of different ways in which society changes. And they're not all top down. They're not all sort of big front page news. Um, yeah. You know, the revolution has come type stuff. Um, and and so he's always wanting us to see power as much more distributed. He talks about a micro physics of power like yeah. in society, for example.
0: I really, really liked that. and I'm glad you brought up the Marx thing because, uh, yeah, a lot of people confused today too on 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 whether postmodernism and neo-marxism and marxism and whether they go hand in hand and all this stuff um it's really really fascinating and i i think it's so important to note because of what they say that's why they're they, they it's like oil and water it's because of how he viewed power and uh and and meta-narratives and the grand overarching themes he resisted that view of history so why would he then join hands with them uh, in politics or something. I, I, I really like you. You said, um, you've said before that power for Foucault is everywhere, but isn't everything. And I, I really, really like that. I really appreciate that. Um, but I, I'm wondering, does, are there people without power? Like, um, he, he talks about, um, he calls, I don't, I don't remember what he calls him, but I know it's kind of insensitive to say, but like mad men, people who are, are, uh, insane, maybe, um, I know all these words are really tough today i usually don't don't speak like this but um someone who has mental uh uh Chris can you help me out man what what, what am I trying to say here um what's a good I, I word guess, for it?
1: I, I guess mental illness is is a a relatively okay. neutral term i mean you know some some people would prefer uh, to speak about you know being having different mental abilities and so forth and we, yeah. we sort of balk at the idea of of illness but i think in 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 general conversation i think mental illness is a think. relatively okay. uh, non-loaded term still some okay. people no doubt will disagree
0: yeah 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 okay um well for, for the people um who were chained against the wall right you, you recount uh his Foucault's recounting of how they used to treat people in these asylums versus hospitals, um, do they have power at all? To um, is there anyone who genuinely doesn't have the ability to act upon someone else's or upon the action of others?
1: Um, I I guess there are different degrees mm. of power, but but I think you've you've also got to try and think of it not simply as something that is possessed by individuals such that I can either have a lot of it or a bit of it okay um I think it flows through society for Foucault in ways that are more complex simply than just it's a weapon wielded you know by 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 individuals and you've either got a big hammer or a little screwdriver you know but everybody's got an amount of power um and it it, it's sort of I think a lot of it is It it, it is institutionalized. It flows in certain ways because of institutions' language also, especially in his earlier work. He really focuses tightly on language and the way in which discursive formations, you know, the way in which we talk about things distributes power in particular situations. And that's not anyone doing that. That's sort of you can't really pinpoint where those things begin you know you know who invented talking about something Mm. in this way or using this terminology but but terminology um influences actions in in huge ways profound ways you know think of any political debate you want to um i just one uh, idea comes to mind here i read a book recently that was talking about how um uh, ronald reagan talked about uh, uh um uh, cutting benefits as a way to emancipate people from the benefit system. You know, so that's mm. a, a sense of using language to to frame things in a certain way, to predispose people to think about a particular issue in a certain way, and and that is you're know, influencing people's actions, again influencing people's attitudes. And so it's not just something that people do; it's something that's all over in society. It's in our language, it's in our institutions, uh, it's in our our habits. It's it's and you know, yes, it is exerted by people, but that's only a small part of the jigsaw.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, that's helpful and I have definitely, you know, talk about uh, epistemes and stuff. I've definitely had the the power is bad drilled into me and it's it's even hard to think of it. You you say um power for for Foucault power is creative, not repressed, not repressive, and it's so ingrained in the way that I think. Um and I try to fight it and even when I try to fight it, uh when I'm being um when I'm, when I'm when I'm resisting, you know, uh, when I'm being contrarian, I'm still, I still buy into the same, the same uh, system. I'm saying, well, no, it's not repressive or, but I don't, I don't think about it as much as being creative or I kind of wince when I think about, um, talking with certain people about God's power. I'm kind of like, Oh, uh, sorry. You know? Yeah.
1: yeah. He, here's, here's a helpful, um, sort of illustration of, of how, Power works for Foucault. I didn't put it in the book because I I ran the book past a Foucault scholar and he was like, yeah, Foucault wouldn't say that. And so yeah. I was okay. I left it out. But I I still think he's quite helpful. Yeah. Um. the, the first way of thinking about power, which is not Foucault's way, is that the George Orwell, nineteen eighty four, way. Oh, yeah. You no, know, so Winston Smith is is this heroic, battler against the the huge powerful system who's trying to resist this this double speak and who knows it's all rubbish but don't say anything and then is finally crushed under the huge you know jackboot of of power um and and in that way of looking at things power is something outside me um that i'm valiantly struggling against mm-hmm. um, that's not Foucault's view of power his view of power is is more like something that you find in the the Shawshank redemption uh, well, you'll you'll remember that character Brooks Holton, yeah. who's been in the the Shushank State Prison for for decades, uh, and finally gets his parole, and you know this should should be we'd think this wonderful moment where finally he's free, but he's he's of course terrified of being free because he's become used to the the rhythms and the constraints of prison life, and he's so assimilated that into to who he is that that he now can't cope outside, and you know so he's this really poignant scene of him gripping so tightly to the. Um, the bar on the seat of the bus in front of him, because he needs something to hold on to. That the, all these limits have suddenly been taken away, and finally, of course, in the film, and I, um, I hope this is not a spoiler. Feel free to edit it out. It's
0: been out for a, a while. He, yeah. he, um, uh, he, he,
1: he, tragically and incredibly poignantly in the film, takes his own life because he can't cope with life outside yeah. uh, the prison. Uh, and so, the, the, the view of power you get there is that it shaped him, like it is him. You can't say that that power is is outside. Brooks Halton, you know, he's he's valiantly resisting it in some Winston Smith sort of way. It's become him. It's constituted him. It's built him over time as a person. And I think Foucault um, would would you know would be much closer to a Brooks Halton way of looking at power. It's like it's it, it's already made us who we are. Like if we think that we're these valiant heroines and heroes trying to sort of keep power at arm's bay, then then we fool ourselves because it's it's already You know, it's already breached the citadel. And and in a sense, it's already built the citadel. Like we can't get to a point before power has constructed us. Um, It's always already us.
0: Um,
1: And therefore the the appropriate um, stance to take towards it is is not, you know, to try and um, simply valiantly resist it as such. Now, of course, he's not saying, and I can I'm trying to think what people listening to and watching this will say, Oh, it's all relative and we should never resist power. And it's just quietism. It? No, 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 no. You know, he was, he was very strong on the social causes that he, um, uh, uh advocated for, you know, the Vietnam war, yeah. um, Iranian revolution, prison reform. He's, he was committed to these things. And so he's not saying, well, everything's already power. So you just, you know, just let the powerful do their powerful thing and, and, and suck it up. Yeah. Um, but, but I think what, what he is saying is, is we shouldn't have this naive heroism which thinks that, oh, power's got nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm res- I've resisted it so far, and I can keep it outside. Um, in, in the same way that, that, that I was suggesting earlier, it, it's also quite a naive idea of culture, that culture is something out there. Right. Um, that I need to stop shaping me yeah. rather than something that for better and for worse – both of those has already shaped me and I need to I need to work that out and work it through and deal with
0: it. Yeah. I I love that. I'm so glad you brought up the culture bit because that that's really helpful to to drive the point home. And you just think about like I'm going to I'm going to rebel against the system and I'm going to do it like my friends with my friends uh and we're all going to wear the same shirts when we do it. Um uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. I I love it. Um but I'm I'm also glad that you said it's good and bad because it's good and bad. Like it's yeah um and i think that's that's a good way of looking at power too uh, uh last thing on on power that i would be remiss to not ask is it um i'm i'm still a little bit foggy on whether it is a relation between persons or 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 if it qualifies like what what's the difference there but can it does it also play a role between like um persons and and animals so maybe putting my zoology hat on um can does is power merely um, interpersonal, like socially constructed in the social world, or does it also, does he, does he put it in contact with, um, zoo animals or your, your dog and domestication of, you know, cats or something?
1: It's a really interesting question. I, I don't know that I have a direct answer to it. I can't say, you know, okay. in, in this book on page 42, sure, it's sure. about animals and this is what he says. Um, but, but I think to the extent that, Certainly, the domestication of animals is a way in which we extend our power and influence and identity over time. And my goodness, you know, that the history of human settlement of the land is largely a, a history of the domestication of, of certain animal species yeah. and their, their employment in, you know, ploughing and so forth. Um just a tiny little footnote, Yuval you Noah Harari has this really interesting idea that actually it's animals that domesticated us. It's, <laughs> it's, agricu- it's agriculture that domesticated us over time and we needed to plant wheat. So we needed to be in one place for a long time. And that's how civilization started, blah, blah, blah. So I think there's really interesting wow. things to be to be said about that. But I think it's so what the Harari example shows is that it's not always all one way. It's not we you know, have power over Of animals or or even over, over crops and so forth. It's, it's that they are shaping, you know, the fact that we now don't forage anymore. We don't, we're not hunter gatherers, but we, um, we plant fields. That means we need to behave in particular ways. We have been acted upon. Our acting has been acted upon by the fact that, you know, I can't just go over the, go over the mountain range now because here's my crops and I need to harvest them at harvest time. So I've got to, got to make a village. Um, and, and so I think that, that it's, That the complex relationships between us and um, crops, landscapes, animals—I'm sure as well. Um, I'm not aware of anywhere that 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 Foucault um, says that, but that's just my ignorance. He may or he may not. I I just don't know.
0: That's fantastic, and and I'm sure from all those books that have been written about him or partially about him, someone has 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 probably put that in touch. Um, It's 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 really fascinating. I I think um, so. I I breed um, endangered. Uh, turtles. I have uh, three species of endangered turtles that I breed. And, and you know, Lord willing, uh, I'll be able to help repopulate Illinois. And I was just thinking, you know, they have acted upon my action and I'm in different uh, cultures because of it. Turtle cultures, turtle guys are uh, really nerdy. We all know like the, the Latin names, which are different than frog people who are usually uh, LGBTQ community. And, and so I have, I'm in all these different worlds because of the animals that I keep. And we all you know shape our homes and our yards and different ponds and stuff based on this. So it's just a, it's a fascinating, weird, weird world, but um, yeah, I, I see it as, as a part of uh, part of proper dominion to, to care for the animals, and that's definitely like a power relation that I think God has established. I, I don't want to go too much. I learned from last time I don't want to take too much of Foucault or, or Derrida and then put it in because the Bible sets its own table. But um, yeah, I, I do think that the power stuff is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So I wanted to, to end here on um, on some Foucault on Christianity, and then we're not spending a lot of time on it, and it's really sad because I'm a Christian, and this is a Christian book, and it's great. But but the cruciform great reversal. Um, we, I'm sorry, I didn't leave enough uh, a ton of time for it. But just like briefly, um, what does Foucault think about Christianity? Um, a lot
1: is the short answer, but not about Christian theology. Yeah. So his, his focus, and this is not just for Christianity, this is for everything, is, is to is to look at what people do, not what they say about what they do necessarily, or, or at least not to take what people say about what they do as the ultimate explanation of what they do, but to, but to look at, at behaviors for themselves. And so when he looks at Christianity, you know, he's not getting into – theories of the atonement or, you know, six-day creationism or whatever. And that's just not what he's interested in. He's looking at Christian practices. Mm. And and one of the practices that that he really focuses on, fascinatingly, is the practice of confession, Um, mainly in a a Catholic tradition where one confesses uh, one's sins regularly to to the priest in the confessional. And, And he draws out of that a model for, the way in which contemporary identity is structured actually. Mm. So he says that what the confessional introduces is a sense that I, I, I I build a sense of who I am through discourse, through talking about myself. I, I um, uh, sort of reveal and, and build who I am and that this is necessary um, that, that, you know, that I I must articulate who I am. Mm. Um, And he, he, locates this as beginning with this practice of confessional. And he's now saying that we, we live in a, a confessional society. Um, so every time, um, and, you know, Charles Taylor and others have this idea of expressive individualism. I must express who I am. Um, and I must, I must, you know, verbally, but also in terms of, of, of how I dress and so forth, I must project yeah. my identity. Uh, and he would say all, all this began, you know, um, psychoanalysis, going to, going to visit a psychoanalyst, and so forth, um, uh, sort of confessions on, on uh, television, you know, the, the sort of tell-all type thing. Um, all of this started with Christian confession, and which has just become generalized in society. So that's the sort of move he makes. He looks at practices and then traces them through in really interesting ways rather than looking at theology. Yeah. And you, you were also asking about this great reversal idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was... So the the problem of writing a a, a book on Foucault from a Christian point of view is that there's so much Foucault and there's so much Christianity. What on earth do you like? How do you make that a book rather than a library? Right. Um, And what I tried to do in the three great thinkers books was to find a way that was appropriate for each thinker that allowed Mm -hmm. the, the Bible to engage with them in a way that doesn't mangle them, but that also allowed the Bible to, to speak in its own voice and didn't mm. sort of squeeze the Bible in, into the mold of, of the philosopher. And it seemed to me the more I read of Foucault and that the, the more I saw what he was doing with power and the way that, that he wanted to construe power and identity, that, that the, a really interesting biblical motif to bring into conversation with him would, would be this idea of great reversal, which is um, that God systematically Overturns expectations of how power we can use that term works in society. So he chooses, you know, the octogenarian Abraham with the barren wife Mm. to be the father of many nations. Like that's that's not normal. You know, you choose the king who has a wonderful sort of palace to live in an offspring and and a great lineage you know we 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 choose jacob the younger son we choose david the the youngest son you're the shepherd yeah. no one likes shepherds they're <laughs> you know they're they're, they're just they're, they're a non-job right that's the thing you do if you can't get a proper job
0: yeah
1: um so and and again and again and again of course most fundamentally of all uh, he chooses the um uh the the epitome of roman shame and failure which is death on a cross and hmm. um, to be the supreme demonstration of his power which is you know even to us now that seems strange but two thousand years ago that's like get out of here yeah like stop it you, that's not power like there's a lot of things that have power dying on a cross <laughs> is not one of them yeah and 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 so he's always God is overturning what we expect power to look like and to be. Yeah. Um. And and I tried to 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 bring that motif mainly through the cross into conversation with Foucault's view of power because it, it seems that in a sense there's there's a similar impetus behind this. So a lot of what Foucault does with 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 identity and power is he's trying to overturn customary. Um, sort of traditional ways of thinking about it, trying to put the cat among the pigeons uh, hmm. a lot. And, and it, it's, it seems that, you know, from a very different point of view and with different assumptions, the Bible is doing the same thing, but there are also really fundamental differences. And, and this idea of the great reversal allowed me to explore um, uh, the, the, the fundamental antithesis and also what I argued is the fundamental fulfillment of what Foucault is trying to get at hmm. in, in the biblical model of the cross. And, and this is turning into quite a long answer. So this is coming. Oh, it's by, so I'm good. So, good. It's, so what, what is, what is crucial? I think in that is that it, th- th- that we lose sight, neither of the antithesis. So, so basically Foucault is not just a sort of another version of what the Bible is doing you know he's okay. not he's not halfway to being the bible yeah uh, he's you know it's not that they're on the same road there is an antithesis between the two that is hard um they are not to be confused with one another and yet there's also a sense in which that the, the the disruption that foucault is seeking the creativity that that foucault is seeking it is Delivered in in a really deep sense in the Christian idea of identity and you mm. know, in, in passages like in, in Paul's, I have been crucified with Christ. Um, uh, you know, therefore, I no longer live. Okay, so I think we know where we stand. He's dead, and the life I now live. Whoa, wait a minute! So you're <laughs> alive? Like, are you dead or are you alive? What has gone on with your identity? Yeah. You know, this this such a radical remaking of identity and such a radical opening of identity onto otherness. You know the otherness of God. God is not like you. But now Christ lives in me. You know you you can't get more other than me mm. than God. You know whatever otherness you want to try and find in this world, it's not as other as God is. Right. <laughs> because of the creator creature distinction. And now to yeah. think that my identity is so cracked open to otherness, as it were, that Christ is in me. I've been fundamentally remade. You know this is Augustine's idea of um, Christ is is more inward than my inmost self and higher than my highest self. Yeah. And um, and and I I was arguing in the book that that there, I think there's a profound sense in which that fulfills so much of what Foucault is is aiming for when he tries to to to, to disrupt traditional ways of constructing identity and introduce otherness into it and introduce creativity into it. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. So antithesis is is irreducible, can't confuse them. And fulfillment I think is irreducible. And if if people are thinking, well, that sounds nice, but what about the Bible? I think that's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 1 with Greek wisdom and Jewish signs. I think he's he's holding strongly to antithesis and to fulfillment. And so I'm using that as the model. If people are, are getting worried that this is some sort of weird <laughs> sort of extra biblical sort of framework, I, I think it is there in 1 Corinthians 1.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, the, the foolish wisdom. And yeah, um, yeah. it's so good um i i thought while you're talking I, I even thought how well you've you've mentioned in the book and in your lectures um how, how the master comes to serve and it's not what you think you don't think that but in doing so he now anyone who serves is following in the footsteps of the master he's like brought it up and so now it's not this it, it has been you know subverted or ruptured or um recontextualized such that now it's a it's a good thing, it, and and maybe it should have been the whole time, right? But he did it. If it's good enough for him to do it, and he's my Lord, then I can do this too. This this is Philippians too, isn't it? Christ Christ humbled himself,
1: you yeah. know, Started in in the, in the um uh, uh, equality with God, and then humbled himself to death on a cross, and then then was exalted. Um, and I think that that the reason that that is a really powerful passage for engaging with so much contemporary thought, I think, um, is that. It, it overturns a lot of categories that are assumed. So it's assumed that there, there's one group that are the oppressors and one group that's the oppressed. And they, they sort of basically remain constant. And mm-hmm. what, what, what Christ is doing here is he's showing, it, it, giving another fundamental way of construing power, which is power voluntarily laid aside, not wrested away from the powerful, you know, mm. not not not. They made a mistake, so they lost their power. not no, voluntarily laid aside, in order to serve, but but not as a staging post. And I think this is really important: that Christ didn't sort of die on a cross and go through, um, you know, thirty-three years of inconvenience in order then simply to return to the position of being powerful. Yeah, and um, although he is exalted above uh, every name, but it's the Lamb that's on the throne. Mm. You know, it's that there's a, there's a something that. Christ's humbling of himself his death on the cross is not as soon as it's over sort of brushed under the carpet well that was unfortunate that we had to go through that let's just get back now right. um, to how things were it's it's in revelation it, it is the lamb the, the the sacrificial victim still that is on the throne so there's something fundamental about Christ's self humbling that he doesn't remain um sort of divested of all power. He is exalted. He he is reigning. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Yes, but that he doesn't, he hasn't forgotten, so to speak, about the humbling. It's not that the, the lamishness of Christ is now an embarrassing memory. Right. No, the lamb is on the throne and that, that messes, I think, so fundamentally with the categories of, of power, um, Uh, And and, and oppression and and so many others as well that we really need to go back to the drawing board and say, again, like we did with subjectivity and objectivity earlier, that the the Bible just bursts apart these old wineskins really quickly. And we've got to think from the ground up about what Christ's self-humbling and exaltation means for the fundamental ways that we think about power and authority um and you know in in our own lives in the christian church and then in, in society more broadly because we can't squeeze it into the the, the frameworks and the patterns of thinking that, that we tend to operate in terms of
0: yeah i love that but bursting it apart and the fact that the lambs on the throne he's still got the the scars he's going to show you know he yeah. still has those yeah. um and it wasn't like you said, it wasn't just swept under the rug. I also think about how he is vanquishing his his foes right now, and it wasn't like he he rose from the tomb and now all the angels are here and it's time judgment day right now. Uh, it's no like here's here's the great commission and I'm sending you out into the world and uh, you're supposed to be wise as serpents, but but you're not supposed to be serpents yourselves. Uh, you know, general stuffs. But the way that he vanquishes his foes is by changing them into his friends. And so like Mm -hmm. I, who was an enemy of Christ, he loved me. And I, that enemy of of Christ is gone. Like he vanquished him. He's, but he didn't do it by destroying him. He made him a new creation. And now I'm, I'm, I tell everyone about him. You know, it's like, that's, that's this, this reversal that you're talking about, I think, uh, finds its place also in, in the great commission because, it's not destroying your foes in this way that we think of the, the classic uh, or maybe not classic, but this, this bipolar or yeah, two poles, power yeah. dynamic. Um, it's, it's so subverted. It's so different. It's, you know, killing them with kindness type thing, but, it, but killing them through salvation. And I've been put to death and it's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. It's awesome. Absolutely. And, and, and again,
1: you know, in three words, love your enemies. That's another of these things that it, right. I, I think it's so hard to make sense of it in in the contemporary context because it, it, it either comes over as saying don't care about what people do and just be nice to everybody even if they're nasty so let them continue being nasty yeah um, uh, or, or it's some sort of yeah pretend to love them but actually you know you're sticking <laughs> them, I think. It, it just it's it's such a subversive concept and and you know the way that Jesus. Loves his enemies is not by saying, Oh, yeah, whatever you're doing is fine, just carry on doing it. Right. Uh, and it's not by yeah, I'm pretending to love you, but actually it's a way of suffocating you. It, it is he he genuinely dies for the ungodly, as Paul says in Romans. And yeah. that so messes with the way we see the world. Yeah. yeah the we being, I think, everybody, and and also Christians, yeah. That 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 we you just need to keep coming back to this again and again and again to, to be recalibrating that the way that we think about social relations and and um and society more broadly it it is one of these unplumbable depths of yeah. Christ's wisdom <laughs> you know what does it mean to love our enemies
0: seriously yeah seriously you can spend the rest of your life and and we will be um thinking through that it's so awesome well chris man this has been huge the the crazy thing is that we just scratched the surface like there's there's more even on this uh, outline that I made that we haven't covered, but there's tons more in the book. There's tons more in your lectures. So um, for for anyone listening that's that's interested, I, I'm, I'm I i can not imagine you not being at this point. But uh, there's lots more. So I I do recommend uh, I commend the book, uh, Michel Foucault. It's in the Great Thinkers series of uh, Presbyterian and Reformed. And um, Dr. Walken, or uh, Chris, man, I keep bouncing back and forth. Um, you you also have uh, some some videos on YouTube uh can you recall the the name of your channel for us um yeah it's thinking through the bible.com
1: is mm. the website okay um, and there's a bunch of stuff on Foucault there if, if you search on
0: that site for Foucault, there's some videos some some written pieces yeah awesome awesome and uh yeah you guys you can search that or you can uh, I will, i'll put that link in the description as well this has been awesome uh Thank you, man. Thanks, thanks so much for helping me think through this kind of stuff. Uh, it's it's so nice to think through uh, Foucault and Derrida and some of these guys who my analytic friends kind of dump on, um, with someone who's done the really hard work. Um, you've you've earned the right to speak about them, but who also is is a staunch Christian and uh, uh, studied Van Til as well. So it's it's been really nice to have this this guide who I trust uh, bringing me through these thinkers.
1: Well, I, I really appreciate the way you, you you draw out the the importance and the significance and uh, and the um, the sort of concreteness and, and relevance to our daily lives of these people. So I, I really appreciate the uh, the way that you've allowed me to speak about these people in a, in a way that's not utterly impenetrable.
0: So thank you. <laughs> this is awesome. Thanks. Well, um, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. Um, but, uh, perhaps we can coax him, uh, Chris back, uh, to coming back on. He's written another book. He's written several more books, uh, in the future, but for now that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always, all glory to God.